stress arises when there is a threat and there is also the perception that you don't have the resources to cope with that threat. And so it's not just about the threat. We need to feel that we have the resources to cope. And so we can't endlessly chase complete safety, complete security, and complete certainty. The Happy Healthy Human podcast will help you build your happy, healthy life. Your host, Paul Levitin, is a board-licensed health and wellness coach, nutrition coach, personal trainer, and behavior change specialist with over 10 years of experience helping people create positive life change. Each week, he discusses topics that will help you understand yourself, why you do the things you do, and how to take steps to create the life of your dreams. He talks with experts from therapists to addictions counselors, coaches, trainers, CEOs, financial planners, and more. If you've ever wondered how can you become the best, happiest, healthiest version of yourself, you've come to the right place. How is our personal well-being linked to the greater well-being of those around us and our communities? Mm, I love that question. Right. So it is incredibly linked uh, for a number of different reasons. One is that a huge part of our mental health and well-being relies on the fact that we have the supportive network of human beings that are there for us. And actually, our very brains expect those social partners to be there for us. Some of my favorite research is by Jim Cohn, who's a social neuroscientist, who studies this, what he calls the social baseline theory, and the fact that our brains evolved to expect having this network that we can fall back on. And when we sense that, when we feel that we have these social others who can support us, our, our brains and our bodies and our whole stress response responds less to every single stressor that occurs to us, every single little threat, every, every call from our boss, every bill that we're struggling to know how to pay. We, our, our bodies are less reactive when we know that we have those social others around us. So that is one huge reason why our mental health relies on those around us. The other major reason is that our emotions, our thoughts, our experiences of the world are collective and they're really, our emotions are contagious. And so not only expecting these social partners to support us, but also their emotions, their well-being infect us almost like it spreads throughout our social network. And so having a social network that is doing well can really affect our mental health in positive ways. Having a social network where everyone is struggling and everyone is stressed can affect our, our mental health in deleterious ways. And so the better we can support each other and the better we can kind of build up the fabric of our societies to be supportive, the better every single person's mental health will be. That's extremely interesting. And there's a few different tangents that that makes you want to go down. And I'll start kind of at the beginning. The first thing that inherently makes me think about, when you talk about the importance of the societal safety net, let's say, to me, my in initial immediate thought goes to the capitalist westernized society that we live in where it's so hyper individualistic. Mm -hmm. And those two things being seemingly to me 
exactly counter to each other. So how do we balance those two things when everything that we're taught is to do for yourself, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, one person can change the world. Right. Well, it's hard. <laughs> um, it's hard to buck your entire society, right? And how it's built. But I, I do think that people are kind of fed up uh, in my senses with the current state of affairs and that we're seeing kind of kick back uh, against that hyper-individualism and that we can only combat that collectively. <laughs> and and I, I do see hope. I do see... Uh, stirrings of, of of people you know pushing back the great resignation um the the um amplification of unions all of these things i think are starting to push back against that and i think people are just so hungry and i think the pandemic too illuminated some of the limitations of that individualistic society by like because we were so much even more isolated you know because of the lockdowns and all of that that we just started this deep hunger <laughs> for for each other and for relying on each other and for building those networks and so i hope that i hope that there is a future where we're pushing back against that hyper individualism but i'm pretty yeah. optimistic <laughs> yeah I, I mean same here right again i i understand that as you just said it's breaking out of societal structures is <laughs> inherently a, a challenging <laughs> endeavor yes. and, and multi-generational probably if, if not more. But, you know, as you were talking um, initially about, you know, the, again, why we, why we need these, you know, societal safety nets and, and the, the others around us to help something that you mentioned that was interesting to me. I've never really heard it phrased this way before. And I'm wondering if you can expand just kind of, you said that it having that again. I keep saying safety net. I don't know if you mm -hmm. if that's what you would call it, but you know, just having that people around us, a social support, something like that, actually makes the way we process stressors to be mm -hmm. different. Meaning that the way I'm understanding it is that the same, as you said, the same stress, the same work for your email. It doesn't change the fact of how we deal with it even, right? Because it's different to say like, okay, I have social support. So when I, you know, when I have a, a stressful event, like my mom dies or something like that, I can lean on my, my, my cousins, my sister, my girlfriend, my, my, my network. That's a different than what you're saying is that literally the way our brain processes it because it knows that it has that social support. So can you explain that a little bit? Like what, what that is? Yeah. So, um, so that particular research was looking at the brain circuits that respond to threatening stimuli. And uh, Jim Cohen, who did this research, a lot of this research actually threatened people with electric shock <laughs> while they were in the neuroimaging scanner to really elicit a, a sense that someone was under threat. And then he had, in different conditions in the experiment, he had sometimes the person was alone, uh, sometimes they were holding the hand of a stranger, and sometimes they were holding the hand of a spouse or a loved one. And he saw us even with the stranger hand-holding, some diminishment of the, that threat reactivity in the brain and a much stronger diminishment when you're holding someone who you know and who knows you and loves you. And in some of his research, he also sees less reactivity in a specific structure called the hypothalamus, which we know is tied to the hormonal stress response. And so the implication there being that 
that you're going to like release less stress cortisol uh, when when you're experiencing these threats like a threat of electric shock or a more social threat in our everyday life and that walking through your life day by day experiencing that lower stress if you have a supportive social network could have real health implications and might be why we see loneliness being tied to greater mortality of um, almost every kind heart disease cancer because people who are lonely don't feel that social support um, there's also a whole body of research uh, by Y Cow that is uh, has to do with um, safety nets and he he relies on fabric science so he looks to the material world for a metaphor for the psychological phenomenon he's describing and talks about the strength of fabrics being the interwoven threads right that support you and that and he he ties it less to things like hand holding and and the kinds of social support you know being able to cry on someone's shoulder and more to the routines of our life and more to the fact that we have these steady routines that we can fall back on that are maintained by our spouses and children and friends and coworkers and that these routines relate to you know productivity and to health and to all of these things and that that our brains expect that sort of social support and that sort of reliance of, okay, today is a predictable day and, and the same things are going to happen and my needs will be met and I have these social partners and how critical that is for also for mental well-being. And that, of course, was hugely disrupted during the pandemic, those sorts of routines, right? And that reliance on our social networks was so disrupted during the pandemic and I suspect is responsible for a lot of the negative effects psychologically of the pandemic. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point about the, the literal material uh, way to look at things. And it's interesting that, you know, you talk about... Um, you know, patterns and habits and routines as a sort of safety net and mm -hmm. a structure similar to the way, uh, you know, people outside of ourselves could be the same, you know, safety net structure support system. And both of these things, when you talk about them that way, look to me to just be what I see as one of the deepest human needs, which is just our search for safety and security. Mm -hmm. Being that, you know, having having support outside ourselves, be it again, a family, a family system, friends, neighbors, coworkers, whatever it is that you feel you can lean on when things go bad means that I can face more challenging stresses, and I have a better chance of coming out on top. And the same thing can be said about routines and structure and anything like that, where having routines, having habits, having practices to go through this world, take a lot of the uncertainty out of things. And you know, uncertainty is the flip side of safety, I think, and, and, at least at a base level. But w the reality that I talk about a lot on the show is that nothing is ever truly certain Mm -hmm. And, you know, safety, although it's something that we're always psychologically searching for, we never really have it. So how do we start to get away from this fear of the unknown and the uncertain and over-reliance? Because again, like there's nothing wrong with having uh, safety structures in, in place, but the fact that we need those things, as you said, if not, we're, we are getting more sick, isn't that inherently kind of like a flawed system because now we're looking for all of these other things to give us quote unquote safety when that's not real in the first place. 
Right. And I, I love that. And we know that stress, I tell my students all the time. So I teach psychology classes and particular motivation and emotion and some classes on mental health. And I always tell my students, because this is what the research suggests, uh, that stress is a perception that there are, of course, certain things like losing a loved one that are going to be stressful to anyone, no matter what. But stress arises when there is a threat and there is also the perception that you don't have the resources to cope with that threat. And so it's not just about the threat, right? Uh, it's also about this perception that you don't have the resources to cope. And I think that what's really interesting about what you just said and what's really critical about stress is that we need to feel that we have the resources to cope. And so we can't endlessly chase complete safety, complete security, and complete certainty, right? Uh, because that's not going to give us the sense that we do, that we can cope, right? Uh, that we need to, to feel self-efficacy, to feel competent. We need to face challenges and then, and then effectively deal with them. And so this is, um, I spent a couple of years writing my most recent book called Mind Over Monsters. And the essence of it is something I call compassionate challenge. And it is essentially that you need a baseline of security, right? You need that secure base. You need some sense that the world is reliable and predictable and that you can exist in it and, and cope within it. But then you also need challenge. You also need those mini threats and to face those threats, to know that you have the resources to cope with them so that you can feel certain and competent going into the future. And so I think, I think that we need both. We need a certain security so that we can face those threats and know that we can cope with them. 100%. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's it's kind of obvious, right? You, you can't look towards self-actualization and meditation and all the and therapy when you can't afford to put food on the table, right? There's a level mm -hmm. of like, we, we, we need to, you, we need to put first things first and having that a base level of safety um, it comes before everything else. There's like, this is Maslow's hierarchy and all the, all these things where we just, you know, it's, it's obvious that we can only focus on these higher level things. Um, once kind of certain levels of our day to day are, taken care of, so to speak. And, right. you know, you brought up your, your book. And one of the things that I, I actually wanted to ask you about is you compassion and challenge. And those two things are exactly what you're, you're speaking about. And I always see these things together as maybe two sides of the same coin, but we know that we need challenge. Just like you said, we need these small challenges to push us forward, right? This is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, progressive overload in the in the gym right if your your muscles you have to work them hard enough to break them down and then give them time to grow and then work them hard again and then break them that's how you grow muscles and that's the same way that our our brains work that's the same way that everything works right we have to we have to push we have to add a stress and then we have to give it a, a chance to recover but my question is with the challenge how do we stop ourselves again coming looking at uh, society as a whole and what I've seen from pushing too hard on the challenge button mm -hmm. so much so that it takes away from the compassion button, right? Because I feel like a lot of people here, there's like, oh, like work, we have to work hard. So then work harder is the answer. We have to push hard. So the push harder is the answer. We have to be challenged. So challenge myself is the answer. And I think that that takes away from the compassion side. So how do we balance those two things if they're both equally important? Right. 
Great question. And I think that the answer is right in your last sentence, <laughs> uh, which is balance. And that might sound like a cop out, but they're a, one of my favorite other favorite neuroscience theories, uh, contemporary neuroscience theories, uh, belongs to Lisa Feldman Barrett, uh, who you may have heard of. She wrote How Emotions Are Made, and she's at Northeastern. And she has written for the popular press uh, about a large body of work that is not just her in the academic press. And that is that the principal reason that we have brains and the principal job of our brains is to manage and balance a body budget. And that just like the gym metaphor that you used, that there are deposits and withdrawals, right? And that small stressors, small deposits or withdrawals rather over time can build strength, right? And, and build those resources, but that we also need to make a lot of deposits. And it's just like just like a financial budget, you have to make sure that your withdrawals and your deposits are balancing. And for the same reason, we need to be sure that we are being compassionate with ourselves. Um, and I do mean that in a very physical sense. I have a chapter on embodied mental health that has a lot to do with those deposits, meaning sleep, meaning nutrition, meaning time with social others, decompressed time, all of these things are going to deposit into our body budgets and into our brain budgets and so that we can make withdrawals, right? So that we can challenge ourselves, so that we can do those activities and face those fears that are going to build strength and resilience over time. But we can't endlessly make withdrawals, right? We can't endlessly challenge ourselves, so we're just going to deplete and we're going to have poor mental health. And one of the things I love about Lisa Bellman Barrett's work is the, the hard line she draws about, you know, physical health is mental health and mental health is physical health. You know, our brains are managing our bodies and our bodies are feeding back to our brains. And so there's no bright line dividing those things. And we need to take care of our, our bodies and our souls if we want to do all of this um, kind of mental, emotional work and face challenges. Yeah. 100% I agree because that that's <clears throat> this podcast is called happy healthy human exactly for that reason right it's yeah. happy ha like happy is the mind healthy is the body mm -hmm. and I you know I, I always say those are two sides of the same coin you can't have one without the other you can never be truly mentally healthy mentally well if your body physically isn't well it's just you know no matter what <clears throat> no matter what it's just not going to be you, you the 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 end of that because if your body isn't well it's going to affect your mental and the same thing in the other way mm -hmm. if you're you can have the most physically it fit body but if mentally you are you know unhappy you are unhinged you are overstressed overwhelmed over over whatever it's always going to come back to somehow affecting your body in the long run so these two things are, again they're they're inextricably woven and you can't right. separate one from the other and you know that's when we talk about that like the the physical and the mental you've already mentioned that like emotions and how they are, they can tend to be contagious. So mm -hmm. the physical and the mental are interwoven in ourselves, but how are these things interwoven with others and how do they start to be contagious in what's going on inside me to affect others? Mm -hmm. 
Well, a couple different ways. Emotions in particular, we read easily from each other. Uh, we read from facial expressions. There's some interesting work showing how we read it in text <laughs> through pauses and word choice and emojis. We um, it's, There's so many interactions that just spell out our emotions. And especially if we feel close to a person, then their emotions are particularly contagious. I um, mentioned before, I'm a college professor. And so I've written about this in the college classroom. And I think anyone who teaches has felt this, you know, um, the, the students' emotions affecting the instructor and the instructor's emotions spreading to the students. And it's just like the symbiotic experience in the classroom, both on the positive side and the negative side. We, there's also a lot of really interesting work in motivation science on what's called mimetic desire and the fact that our goals too are contagious and that, again, the more closely bonded we are, the more we identify with people, the more we look up to them, the more their goals will influence ours. But you can definitely see this spread of, of goals from, from one person to another. And I try to maximize that in the classroom too, because if you can get everyone on board to you know, have the goal of having a great semester and really uh, learning together and striving together, you can have a much more positive semester than otherwise. But all of these things, like e even our thoughts about the world, I mean, you can, we could get into a whole thing, it's not my area, but about disinformation and misinformation and, and how contagious that is. Um, we really are, our knowledge of the world and our experience of the world is collectively sourced. Um, we're a very ultra social species. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Exactly when you explain it that way, ultra social, right? That, 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 that makes a lot of sense to me because as you said, we're always hyper-connected. We are for mm -hmm. better or for worse. Again, counter to whatever our, our individualistic society would have us believe, we are super connected in a million other ways. And you mentioned, you know, that the emotions playing a role in your classroom. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can go a little bit deeper on how emotions and learning intersect. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, so that's the topic of my first book. <laughs> it's called The Spark of Learning, and it's all about how emotions affect learning. That's my primary research area. I uh, started out studying emotion science and just fascinated by emotions in the classroom. And I think so much of learning has to do with emotions. I think emotions identify for us, they're all about our values, what we find interesting, what we find important, what we find shocking, what we find uh, intriguing. All of these things are the things that we're going to dive deep into and learn about. And there's a um, famous neuroscientist, uh, Mary Helen Imordino Yang, who studies emotions and learning from a neuroscience perspective. And she says, literally, we cannot learn what we don't care about. If you have no interest in a topic or a fact. Like you can maybe memorize it for two weeks for the exam. <laughs> uh, but if you have, if you see no value in it, if you care not a whit about it, then that is going to fade very quickly from, from memory. And so by tapping into 
student emotions uh, by trying to think about what they might value, by asking them what they might value, by giving them some choice in what they're going to study that semester. You can really maximize their motivation to work harder, to take more on, to read more deeply, to discuss more in class, to do all of these things that are going to affect learning and then uh, also memory and attention. And so I really advocate for instructors to, to think about the emotional climate of their classroom before all those contagious emotion reasons. And if the instructor is passionate, if they're engaged, you know, they're going to, uh, that's going to spread to the students, but then also thinking about assignments and assessments and how much, how to tap into what students value as a way to get them more motivated to learn, I think can be really powerful. Definitely is extremely powerful and extremely important. And you can see the difference between a educator like yourself who actually latches onto this because this can be a tool for positive growth and that mm -hmm. can be used. Or if you see someone fight against this and not take these type of things into account, you those are the classrooms with the kids with the glazed over eyes or who are just <laughs> scrolling on their phones now. But th the point you made there that was very interesting to me was that like you cannot learn what you aren't interested in. And I think that this is a, an important point to kind of highlight for a second, because this is something that I've spoken about a lot ever since I was working in the gym as a personal trainer. You can't, beyond just learning, I don't think that you can be successful at anything mm -hmm. that you aren't interested in because yeah. you're trying to force something that you are inherently not excited about, right? So this is the person who's like, well, I know I got to be healthy, so I'm just going to run. And I'm like, but do you like running? They're like, no, but running is good for me. I'm like, I don't know. Well, like you just said, it's like memorizing versus learning something and, and internalizing it. Like, could you force yourself to run for some time? I'm sure mm -hmm. you could. I'm sure you can get a, a good string going. But eventually, because you don't like it, you're going to stop doing it. And, you know, same thing with learning. If you're not interested in something, I really, I heard this on a podcast the other day, and they were talking about you know, whenever you fly, you fly on one of like probably like four different types of planes. And usually it's a Boeing 757. And we've all probably flown on hundreds, if not thousands of times in our lives. And it's like, you've heard that same safety announcement probably a thousand times. But <laughs> do you know where the exit rows in a Boeing 757 are? Do you know where the, uh, the, the life-saving equipment is and stuff like that? It's like, I sure don't. Mm -hmm. But I've heard that stuff. So if, if like that, why didn't I learn that when that information has come into my brain over and over a thousand times? I've heard those words. I've watched the thing. I've looked at the little card. Why haven't I learned that yet? And it's exactly to your point. It's because I have no interest in that. I don't care about it. I'm tuning it out as it's happening. So what do we do then when we maybe don't have the option to be interested in everything? Or, or where do we go from there if I, you're telling me that I can only learn what I'm actually interested in? Do I just not care about things that don't interest me? Or how can I make myself interested in things so that I can learn them if I have to? Mm -hmm. Well, you can tie them into other things that you are interested in. <laughs> and I think that really good instructors, especially for courses I mean, let's face it, there are certain courses that more students aren't interested in, right? Uh, if you are teaching a math class that is the intro level math class that every college student has to take. Uh, if you're from my own field, I'm picking on math, but <laughs> uh, I'm showing my colors here. But 
you have to take statistics as part of a psychology major. And most psychology majors don't kind of realize that until they get to college. And there's, wait a minute, I have to take statistics and sometimes several semesters of statistics. And so as I taught statistics and so what I tried to do as the instructor was to use examples in class and on the assignments that that tapped into things I knew students were interested in, right? So I would take data sets uh, from clinical psychology, comparing, you know, different treatments for patients undergoing psychosis, right? And and so you're comparing the different treatments and, and the students are actually invested in finding out, does treatment A, is it superior to treatment B? And so even though the, you know, rather than, you know, the, the textbook examples. And hopefully if you have good instructors, they can do that for you. But I think that you can also kind of tie things into yourself. Um, so if you're taking a statistics class that's using all the textbook examples and it's pretty boring, you can investigate how would I use this in my career or talk to clinical psychologists who are out in the field and ask them to reflect on uh, how those statistics classes influence their current jobs. And so you can try to tap into some of that yourself. Yeah. And uh, to your point, I think that, yeah, it'd be great if educators and teachers did all this stuff. But I also think for people listening, the important takeaway here is that you can do that for yourself. And Mm -hmm. that's the way to hammer these ideas into your head a bit, because it is important. But if you aren't looking at it from the right perspective, you won't internalize these things. So reminding yourself or tricking yourself if you will if you, even if you want to about how this is how it applies to you i think is extremely important right so again i always just use fitness as an analogy just because i think it's super easy and most people have some experience with trying to get fit at some level and you know when people would come to me at the gym again as a personal trainer for a long time and I would start, you know, talking about muscle insertions or things like that. And they're like, I don't care about any of this. Like, I just want to get fit. I just want to be stronger. I just want to lose weight or whatever their goal was. And it's like, okay, and here's why knowing this will actually help you reach that goal. Yeah. Because you can, because when you understand what your hamstring does or what your glute does and you understand its role in movement, you can choose better exercises. You can work out more safely. When you choose better exercises and work out more safely, you get injured less. When you get injured less, you work out more. When you work out more, you get better results. And now they go, oh, okay, kind of a light bulb goes off. And it's like, okay, yeah. like I understand this isn't just random knowledge that you're trying to feed me. This is knowledge that will help in my specific goal pursuit. So for people listening, how can you, whatever the thing is that you're trying to learn, how can you apply it to your specific field, to making more money, to being better at your job, to doing all of these things and keep that top of mind as you go through this learning process? Because, you know, as, as you just said, Sarah, when we don't do that, we're kind of, uh, fighting an uphill battle where we're right. trying to learn something that our brain is not being as receptive of. So, you know, when you, as an educator, start to think about, you know, how to best make these changes, right? You're talking about like educators can be a little bit different, but you're talking, you're at the college level. And I know that your more recent book is actually for educating uh, younger kids and how we can start there. So what is the difference when we're talking about how do we need to work with, you know, 
younger kids educating. I'm sure people listening have have kids or if you know nephews, nieces, versus how we would educate a college kid versus how we educate ourselves as adults. Mm-hmm. Well, I think at each step, as you go from adults down, <laughs> you need a little more scaffolding and supports and small steps building up, right? Um, and you also probably need some carrots. I'm not against you know, all extrinsic motivators. <laughs> and I think I think even I was thinking as you were, you were talking about the gym and talking about these topics and skills that may be less inherently interesting to your listeners or to students, that some some people in my field are think that intrinsic motivation has to be everything and we can tap into intrinsic motivation for everything. I think that there are certain things in life that we are important for our goals that are not inherently interesting to us and that we need to just get through, right? And I think that it's great to have, like you said, keep top of mind the overarching goal and how this might relate to it. But I think also offering yourself some little rewards. You know, I love the Pomodoro method. I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with that, where you work for a discrete period of time on something very steadily, and then you give yourself a five to 10 minute break to do something pleasurable, you know, check social media, get a snack. Um, and I think that those sorts of motivational schemes can be really great for the less inherently interesting to the individual tasks, but nonetheless important to the goals. And I think probably younger students and younger kids need more of that. And they're probably going to need some more carrots <laughs> than um, a little heavier leaning on the extrinsic motivation than, than the intrinsic motivation because it comes a little less naturally. But I think that they also need a lot of um, kind of scaffolding and supports from their from their parents, from their teachers, from the adults in their life. Uh, they also need really good modeling. So, you know, the whole do as I say, not as I do doesn't really fly. Uh, and in particular, I think, with establishing well-being and mental health. And so I think it's really important for adults with children in their lives whose mental well-being they care a lot about to prioritize their physical and mental health as well as in order to model that behavior that this is important, that yes, school's important, yes, careers are important, but it's even more important to be a happy, healthy human. Yeah, I, I like the word you used a few times there, scaffolding, right? So we have a mm-hmm. safety net, we have scaffolding, and we're starting to see all of these mental pictures of like structure that are built around to support us. And, you know, as you talk about, you know, kids, especially, you know, you brought up mental health. I'm curious, how do you see this interaction between education and emotion and mental health playing out one in our today's youth, right? But also to extrapolate that on today's youth will become the adults of tomorrow, so mm-hmm. how is that mental health that's playing out in our schools now going to then affect the mental health of adults in the future generation? Right. I think the the scary thing about right now, and this kind of harkens back to what you were talking about earlier about our society's, the current state of individualism and, and you know, late stage capitalism and all that. I think that Today's youth really are convinced by their parents that resources are scarce and that they really have to fight, you know, to get 
the the top career and the top career not being the one that is filled with purpose and and matches their talents but is you know the one that's going to be lucrative and powerful and that you need to get there and get into the best school and the best school being the most selective in order to have this security because so many people don't feel secure in in today's society and and parents are pushing their children like that because they love them and they perceive this this scarcity and they are worried for their children. But I think that it creates this atmosphere where youth feel like if they make the slightest slip, you know, that their their whole future is going to be doomed. And that's not good for mental health. And and it's not good for exploration. It's not good for creativity. It's not good for society to have an entire society of youth. And as you say, moving into adulthood that are making choices primarily based on security and how much money they can make. You know, we need to solve a lot of the crises that are facing us. We need creativity. We need people with very varied skills. We need purpose-filled people and... I think that that is one of the scariest things about the present moment to me. So this is, I guess I would say maybe, but definitely a loaded question. Uh, but mm -hmm. you know, again, you just mentioned, I've mentioned already systemic issues, societal issues, capitalism issues, and everything that we're talking about here affects the greater whole. So is it possible to change these systemic societal level issues with person level changes you know how do we even start to unravel this that's so mm -hmm. built into our jobs the school system our beliefs what our parents were taught what their parents were taught and literally everything around us that we are taking in both consciously and subconsciously at all given times yep yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's a hard question, and um, it's one that I, of course, don't have a neat and easy answer to. Um, I, I guess I would only say that ch change is possible, and we did we saw we saw it with the pandemic, right? Like, who would have thought? like all of education could go online. That you know, I mean, who would have thought like all of that was possible, and it happened to meet the crisis. Um, and, and then I'm also really intrigued by tipping points and, and, and by some research on tipping points. And we do see this. We see this with some pretty hot topic issues like gay marriage, like uh, the legalization of marijuana, these things that seemed impossible for a really long time. And then like people's opinions just reached some kind of tipping point and then everything cascaded and, and change happened. And so that's what gives me hope is, is that, and that individual responses to things like climate change are not going to change climate change. <laughs> but the only thing that will change those things is collective change and collective change is made up of individuals working together. So, um, that's that's what I kind of hang my optimist's hat on. But I agree that that one person, you know, looking to affect change on a systemic level is um, that's that's not going to work. Yeah, it's it's this weird paradox that I've thought about 
where you know people talk about voting, right? Does mm-hmm. does what does my vote matter? And it's easy to see no that your vote does not matter because the person who won won by 600,000 votes and you are one vote and so your vote didn't matter in either direction. And yet if everyone takes that stance and then no one votes, suddenly one vote does matter because yeah. now so it's you know it's we, we're in this it's this weird paradox of like yes and no at the same time. But I, I appreciate what you, you you know you mentioned about you know gay marriage, uh, marijuana legalization, and these things like you said that were impossible. And again, I go back to these fitness analogies where the thing I, I like the reason I like that you brought that up is because if one impossible thing is can be done, then more impossible things can be done. Right. So you know when I was you know it was using again the analogy in the gym. I remember the first time I ever went to try to lift like three hundred pounds like a deadlift, and it was just like it literally felt as if I was trying to lift the earth. Like there was no, <laughs> it did not move off of the the ground even like a millimeter. It just was it was impossible. I was like, oh, that's impossible. And then a year or two later, after training and whatever, 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 I went and I lifted it, and it like came up, and I was like, oh. That thing that was literally impossible mm-hmm. just a year ago, like it was, I tried to lift it. It was physically impossible and now it's not. So if that's possible, if it's possible for, for me to take that thing that was impossible and now make it possible, what other things are like that? And like a, a, a gear turned in my brain where I was like, oh, okay, nothing is impossible. Like everything is impossible until it isn't. It was impossible to fly until they made airplanes. It was impossible for you and I to talk like this until they made Zoom and internet and all this stuff. So all of these things are impossible. And I think that is just a very uh, hopeful way to look at the world where we don't have to, it's not about what is possible now because anything can be possible if we try to do it. But that's where we get caught up where we people don't want to try or have the motivation to actually get going to do the thing that would create right. the change. So, you know, and that's always the, the million dollar question, right? Like, where do we get motivation from? How do we get motivated? And, you know, you mentioned before about it kind of being contagious and you can like your, your motivation will affect others and other people's motivation will affect you. But where do we start you know, for, you know, people who are feeling stuck right now, how do you start to create that initial motivation to get the the wheel turning, right? Momentum takes mm-hmm. over after a while, but it's the initial turn that takes the most energy. Right, right. I For that, I love uh, Adrienne Marie Brown, who writes about um, change and, and, and especially about social issues. And she says a couple of things that I love. And uh, one is that small is all, and that you have to start small, just do something small. And collectively, if everyone does something small, that builds up. And the other thing, one of her books, I think the title of one of her books is called Pleasure Activism. <laughs> and and she argues that we have to find ways, kind of hearkening back to our conversation about learning and about intrinsic motivation, we have to find ways to do activism that are pleasurable to us. And I think that we get into this mindset of, you know, we have to choose a volunteer job that is that is laborious and like kind of painful that we we, we should f- feel bad doing it, right? Because then we'll be truly virtuous. But she and others argue that, that no, because that's never going to be motivating and we're going to abandon it pretty quickly, right? Uh, when things get stressful, when time gets busy. But if you can choose activism that is, again, tied into things that you value and care about and enjoy that brings you pleasure, then, and if everyone does that, 
then you know different things bring different people pleasure, then we can pursue a better world and also mental well-being. Yeah, and it's you know it's interesting you bring that up and it aligns up perfectly what what you've been talking about this whole time which lines up perfectly with what I've been talking about for the last 200 some episodes on this show which is <laughs> you said small changes done over time pick things yeah. that you're interested in try things that actually invigorate you it's like the rules are there you know the the, the guidelines are there and people want to pl- want want to make it harder than it has to be right this stuff mm-hmm. is already hard Right. So to do, you know, again, whether it's working out, whether it's choosing a volunteer job, whether it's choosing a real job, if you're trying to force yourself to do something that you don't want to do, you're taking something that's already hard, which is doing something because doing anything is hard because doing nothing is easy. So doing anytime you're choosing to do something over doing nothing, you're inherently choosing the harder route, right? It's always easier to just lay in my bed than it is to to get up and do something. It's good. So inherently, if you're choosing to do anything, you're choosing something that's challenging. So by shooting yourself in the foot and making it even more challenging than it has to be, you're kind of cutting off, cutting yourself off from the actual potential to ever see that thing. But mm-hmm. you know, that, that's how I feel. And I, I feel like that's uh, kind of been mirrored here, but I, I know that the pushback that I get to that whenever I talk like that is that like, no, like you're supposed to be like, you're supposed to push through hard stuff and you're supposed to be motivated and you're supposed to like, it's like the rah, 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 like put your head down and like run through a wall type of stuff. So I'm curious, why does that not work? Like if we, if we know it's supposed to be hard, shouldn't the answer just be to like grit your teeth and bear it? Mm. Well, I think if you look to goal setting research, we should choose difficult goals, uh, stretch goals, things that are just at the very tips of our fingertips, <laughs> right? Um, that does seem to be more motivating. You know, if we choose goals that are too easy, you know, if you regularly run five miles and you decide to run a 5K, you know, that's not going to be terribly motivating to get you out training more uh, often or harder. But so we do want difficult goals. But I think that we confuse difficult and challenging with with unpleasant, right? And I think that just basic motivational systems, trying to push you through something that you find deeply unpleasant is, is like you said, shooting yourself in the foot, like that you're not, you might get there, you might push yourself through it, you might succeed eventually, but I don't think that you'll ever go as far or thrive as much as if you chose something that you found pleasurable, Uh, difficult, but pleasurable. (laughs) And so I think that we should disentangle challenge and unpleasantness. Um, And I don't think, you know, I'm not a stoic, like I do not think that intentionally choosing things that are unpleasant or um, beyond our reach is, is going to be terribly motivating. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like that distinction between, you know, challenging and, and the unpleasantness, right? There's a challenge is inherently, I think, motivating, right? We all like to be challenged and mm-hmm. to come out on top of a challenge is a reward in and of itself. When you do something and you conquer the thing, whatever the thing was, like I said, you know, the lifting a weight that I've never lifted before was it felt good not because anyone was watching or not because I got paid to do it or not because I got applause for it. It felt good because I was like, I did that. And that felt good to me. The same thing when you finish a book or write a paper or anything like that, there's a a level of inherent 
that uh, uh, inherent satisfaction you get out of doing a thing that is then motivating. That's what I was saying before, like momentum will get going after a while. But I, but that, I think that I like the distinction where you're saying like, it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to suck, right? Like, you know, there's mm-hmm. going to be some, some challenge there is fine. Um, but it doesn't have to be the the most uncomfortable thing. And, you know, this goes against, again, the, the whole thing that I'm very anti on this show. Anyone who listens knows that I like no pain, no gain, right? Like I, yeah. I feel like that was like the most damaging phrase to ever came, come out of like the 1980s <laughs> or whenever the hell yeah. someone made it up, you know, it's like, no, there's a lot to be gained without pain. Probably most of what you can gain comes from without pain. You know, like mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that we can avoid pain at all at all times and all costs but to purposefully subject yourself to something that is overtly uncomfortable and painful with the expectation that that will motivate you to go forward is always going to have the counter effect it's going to your brain doesn't like to be uncomfortable so it's going to say well let's just not do that thing it's not going to say right. like let's do it for two for, for a year and get better at it it's going to say hmm, let's just stop and i think that you know people uh d- don't understand quite how that that works in the brain so i appreciate i appreciate you bringing bringing that up and you know i i know we've kind of we didn't even really cover this but i wanted to at least uh, before we wrap this up um talk about your book a little bit. And I wanted to, if you had like an elevator pitch for your newest book, uh, mind over monsters, supporting your mm-hmm. mental health with compassionate challenge. Like I love that, that that's the, you know, the, the, the that re- book, just the title in and of itself, supporting your mental health with compassionate challenge was what interested me in having you on the show. So what do you want people to know about it? Or what was your mission in writing this book to get people interested and, in, you know, maybe going out and buying it? Yeah. Well, I think that our conversation leading up to this covered a lot of the points uh, and about compassionate challenge. But I guess my motivation in writing it and what I really hoped it would do is I do see these these kind of warring camps, uh, especially in education, but in other places than education as well in mental health research, for instance, where there's uh, one side is arguing that we need endless compassion and safety and security and that we should, um, you know, we, we should put all of our eggs in that basket. And then the other side, you know, arguing for return of rigor and some of the, you know, no pain, no gain, uh, that we need challenge and all of that. And I think that there's really wonderful people in both of these camps and that actually they share more agreement than they know, but they don't talk to each other very much. And so I'm trying to bridge that gap and say, yes, of course, we need challenge to, for all the reasons that we talked about, I won't repeat them, uh, in this podcast, but we need to start with that secure base and we need to start. It's not just about Maslow's, you know, physical security and food on the table and safety from violence, but also things like belongingness, things like psychological safety, feeling like you can be vulnerable without taking large risks and things like autonomy and competence. And that if we build the secure base, then yes, we need to challenge folks, because I think sometimes some of the mental health awareness messaging talks about being aware of your emotions and being aware of your anxiety, but then doesn't follow through with what you do with that awareness. And I think that the first instinct of most human beings when you're feeling anxious and threatened and uncertain is to withdraw or to avoid. And I think that that's pretty dangerous, uh, especially over time. And that instead we need to take people who are feeling that way, put them in these safe settings so that they then can face their fears. Yeah. I think that that is a 
beautiful and important message. And it, it kind of, it just, as you were just saying, it's not either or it's both and right. It's, you know, we, we want a simple cut and dry answer. And usually the answer lies in the nuance and in the middle. And then that's what you're getting at. And I think that's always an important uh, place to bring people to. So I appreciate that. The, the last question I have for you, Sarah, the same question I ask all of my guests, if you had one action step, that listeners can take as soon as this episode ends, as soon as they take their headphones out right now to start living a happier, healthier life, what would it be? I think they should put on some PJs and go to sleep. (laughs) And (laughs) this is probably something that other people have said as well, but I am a big, 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 big fan of sleep. I think it's one of the most important deposits that we make to that body budget. I think that people are pretty well aware of sleep's effect on physical health, but The data on sleep and mental health is really compelling, including some models of depression that argue that a lot of depressive disorders are actually sleep disorders and that all of the emotional and motivational effects are actually due to poor sleep. Um, I, I think that sleep is so important. And I think as a society, especially people who listen to podcasts about how to better themselves, you know, tend to cut back on sleep in order to get the exercise in, to get meditate in the morning, to do all these things. And all that's great. Exercise is great. Meditation is great. Uh, but sleep's got to come first. Yeah, that's a great point. And I'm actually super interested in that as, as well. Some of those uh, studies you were just talking about, I, I want to dig into that a bit more. But uh, you might be the first person, uh, sleep is definitely huge, but you might be the first person to list that as their action step. And I really, I really oh, love good. that. Yeah, I love that. Uh, a lot of people talk about breath, breathing and, and mm-hmm. like getting more steps. But you know that I, I love sleep because it's theoretically the easiest thing, but it's also the hardest thing for people to change. Yeah. People will change their whole diet, their whole exercise routine. They'll start meditating, but getting ask them to get two more hours of sleep a day. And it's like, whoa, hold on there, buddy. So I, I appreciate that a lot. <laughs> um, okay. I, w- I want to, uh, one, just thank you for being here. I really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, for people, I'm going to have all your stuff listed in the show notes, link to your book on Amazon and uh, anywhere, your, your social medias. But if people want to contact you or want to get to know you a little bit more, where's the best place for them to find you? Well, I traditionally I would say Twitter, <laughs> but uh, it's kind of weird over there right now. Uh, I am on Blue Sky and trying that out, uh, but my website as a more permanent solution is probably the best. Amazing! Place. So I'll, I'll have that in the show notes. Uh, again, Sarah, thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed oh, this. Oh, thank you. This is great. That's all for this week. Be sure to subscribe and follow the show so you don't miss a beat. Support the show by sending this episode to a friend or leaving a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Stay happy, stay healthy.